God is good all the time. Is it just me or is it possible today is like November's greatest hit for a day in the history of November? I mean, it, what a beautiful day. We are rested, right? Everybody took advantage of your hours sleep. My dog, Buffy, my 200-year-old rescue dog, is unaware that we are on central time because at 5 o'clock, she was right there ready to be taken out. So we've got a little adjustment to do. I'm going to explain to her this afternoon that we live in the Midwest. I am thrilled to be here. In between services, a young man stopped me right under the stairs. And he said, let me make sure I've got this right. Jesus of Nazareth. How did, how's that pronounced? I said, Yeshua Nazareth. And what language did they speak back then? Aramaic. And the name Jesus would have been Joshua in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. He goes, okay, got it. I said, fantastic, fantastic. Always feel like you can ask me questions. In this series, we are exploring the collection of Jesus' teaching material that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's an incredible gift to us. It's a series that Jesus offered to his disciples. Crowds are gathering below. Jesus is on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He's equipping them to do ministry. My task in presenting this is sort of to take the sunglasses off of you, whatever lens it is that you often view the Bible, whether it's political or American or Western, I just want to take that lens off of you. And I want to approach this material and hear it as it was originally being heard. Hear it in its own time and its own context. Obviously, the Bible transcends time and space. God speaks to us just as powerfully through the Bible right now is the moment that pen was put to parchment. But it all was written in a time and in a space. So this material would have come from circa 30 AD, Galilee region of Israel, which would have been occupied by the Romans. It would be somewhat dangerous to go today where a lot of this material took place. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount by instructing us that the more out of control the world seems, the more blessed we are if it makes us acutely aware of our need for God. I did a message a handful of weeks ago on the state of the world and what all was, was going on. And I don't know about you, but things haven't cleared up any. In fact, things haven't cleared up at all. We still don't know what is going to go down. And we still don't know how this is all going to unfold. We honestly don't know if World War III is coming, a huge regional war is coming in the Middle East, or if this eventually comes down. We, we don't know. But Jesus would say, if you're feeling the uncertainty of that, and if you are aware that you need God, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Jesus then challenged his followers to be what's good in the world. People will say to me, hey, in, in the midst of this conflict, what, what's our role? Our role as Christians is always to be what's good in the world. That, that's who we are. It's what we are to be. And then he declared himself to be the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And his big idea in all of this is that religion can't save you. 
but I can. I define religion as blind adherence to a preconceived set of notions. So just because you believe something doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Religion's sort of on a neutral platform with me. It's, it's what people believe that matters. But Jesus is saying religion in and of itself can't save you. Only I can. And that is his message throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus, we are to be attuned to the, I'm going to call them the, the three legs of the stool of ancient religious thought in terms of Judaism. In Jesus' world, the temple was the heartbeat of the Bible. It still was. It's going to be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, but it's still going in Jesus' time. And it's kind of the heartbeat. And there's three things that followers of God were expected to do. Fast, pray, and give to the poor. Jesus expected that his followers would continue to do those things. But he pushes it even further. What you always got to remember about Jesus is they did not hang him on a cross because he gets us. They hung him on a cross because he got under their skin. Because he offended their sensibilities. When we read the teachings of Jesus, they are delivered provocatively. They are delivered to stir up anything in us that is not congruent or in alignment with the kingdom of God. So if you read Jesus and you start getting lit up about something, Jesus intended to do that. Because it's revealing to you things that are inside of you that, that Jesus doesn't want there. When I read Jesus, he's always saying, follow me. Discipleship is about crucifying all loves and desires and values in us that run contrary to the kingdom of God. And, and for me, when I read particularly the words of Jesus, I'm brought to crisis point after crisis point after crisis point. Two or three weeks ago, I got to the part about fasting, and I thought, I really don't do that. I mean, I'll do it every now and then. I mean, if everybody's doing it. But as far as a regular part of my life, I don't, I don't do that. And I, I got under conviction. And first, you kind of light up, and you want to tell God why you don't do that. And then God says, oh, stop it. You're either going to do it or you won't. And if you do, you'll be rewarded. And if you don't, you're on your own. I thought, well, I'll, I'll do it. I'll just do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to be obedient here. And Jesus is always bringing us to these points of crises. You have to decide. And for me, the crises is best articulated, summarized. If you throw it all in a blender and add ice, the, the frappe that, that comes out is simply the statement. You can't love God and money. You'll love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. You have to choose. You have to choose. And, and for Jesus, this was not a decision. It was the decision. You have to choose. You don't get to live with one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. You have to choose. You have to decide. And that's why people either repented and declared Jesus to be Lord are they filled up with pride and anger and they yelled, crucify him. He made you go one way or the other. Anybody old enough that you used to play chicken on bicycles when you were kids? Yeah. This would kill modern kids. But we survived. 
And the whole idea back in those days was you ride a bicycle at somebody and somebody is going to turn away or not. And you really always knew which kids in your neighborhood were crazy. <laughs> you did. You knew which ones were not going to turn away. And so you needed to kind of negotiate all of that. It always feels like to me, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is playing chicken with us. The kingdom of God's coming right at us, and we're just going to have to go one way or the other. We're going to have to be obedient or disobedient, but you can't be both. You can't be both. Those who choose Jesus will live in peace. Those who choose the core values of this world will live in anxiety. Jesus is really clear. Worry and faith are mutually exclusive realms of existence. Faith cannot grow in the soil of anxiety. Using the same dichotomy that pits loving God against loving money, Jesus pits a life of faith and contrasts it to a life of worry. For Jesus, if you're walking in faith, you're not worrying. And if you're walking in worry, you're not expressing faith. It is just that simple. When Jesus called his disciples, he asked them to count the cost of following him. Everybody had to decide whether or not they could afford to follow Jesus. And we have to decide it as well. Can we afford to follow Jesus? In one of our early capital campaigns, a prisoner said something to me I'll never forget. She said, Shane, we can't just ask people to give. We have to assure them that God will take care of them when they give. And you know what? That doesn't just apply to finances. It, it also refers to the gifts of our time and our talents, the ways that we volunteer, giving of ourselves. Jesus is telling us that we can afford to be his disciples. We can afford to be his disciples. So what I want to do here is I want to explore this particular piece of the Sermon on the Mount in response to a very simple question. Here's the question. Jesus, if we say yes to your call, can we trust you to take care of us? All right? If we say yes to your call, can we trust you to take care of us? I want you to read this all in that light, because that's where it's delivered. Verse 25 and 26. Don't worry about whether you have enough food, drink, or clothes. Life consists of more than these things. God takes care of the birds, and you are more valuable than they. The relationship between worry and happiness is well documented. People consumed with worry aren't happy, and happy people aren't consumed with worry. It's just well documented. The happier you are, the less you worry. The more you worry, the more unhappy you are. The Greek word isn't just passive worry. It's, it it's really means to worry anxiously. Because there are some things that should concern us, right? There's some things that really should concern us. But this isn't really that. It's not a legitimate concern. It's, it's an active, ruminating, keep it on the front burner, keep feeding the fire, don't let it go, don't let it get out of your head kind of worry. It's worry that we dwell on and we feed the worry. The big idea for Jesus is that only by choosing the eternal over the temporal, the, the important over the urgent, and money over faith, that we'll be in a position to break free from the gravity field of fear and worry. For Jesus, if worry dominates our minds and thoughts, 
It serves as empirical evidence that God isn't first in our life. Worry can't be your God and Jesus be your God. Only one person gets to sit on the throne. As Jesus drilled down into what it means to break free from worry, he kind of addresses the essentials of life. He addresses clothing, he addresses food, and he addresses drink. Those are all things we need. We we need water, actually, the most. You, You can't go very long without water. We need food, and we need protection from the various and sundry elements. You say, well, why does Jesus hit such basic things? Because I don't think he would if he were talking to us. You do realize we are among the most affluent fraction of 1% of people that's ever inhabited the earth, right? All of us. He wouldn't do this if he was talking to us today. you got to remember who followed Jesus. Desperate people. The, the people who comprise revolutions are the ones that follow Jesus. Sick people that the doctors couldn't help. People who were not in their right minds and, and no one could help them. People who didn't have enough to live. People who were just hoping to catch a break. People who were hopeless and looking for hope. Those were the people that flocked to Jesus. And those are the people that Jesus is equipping his disciples to minister to. So he's going to go to the very basic things. And Jesus is saying that those who choose God still need to eat and drink and be protected against the elements. But those who choose this world will turn those things into an art form. In fact, they will make gods out of food and drink and clothing. Now, does it feel like Jesus is a little closer to where we live? I mean, let's be real honest. In an affluent society like U.S. America in 2023... Do we really eat, drink, and wear clothes to live? Or do we live to eat, drink, and wear clothes? Common people in Jesus' day ate whatever the land provided. Fruits, nuts, whole grains, fish, rare meat, red meats, a rare luxury served for, save for festivals and special occasions and weddings. That's why people like to go to weddings back then, because you got stuff that you never would get to eat otherwise. It's why people don't like to go to weddings today because every day's a wedding, right? I mean, Christmas is coming up, right? You got kids, got grandkids. It's kind of hard to figure out what to buy for your kids and grandkids because every day is Christmas. Every day's Christmas. What do they need? Nothing. What do they want? Things I can't afford. What do you get them? Brute sets. Brute for the man from Dollar General. That's what you need to get them. (laughs) Think about it. Jesus is saying, if you have everything, you're just going to take the necessities of life and you're going to turn them into an art form. Regular people drank water and, and juice and wine. They wore simple Clothing spun from local products. These people live day to day. And they could easily become consumed with worry about lacking the basic necessities. Do you remember the story about Jesus? This huge crowd's fallen in the Galilee and everybody's hungry. And they look around and Jesus said, there's, there's, 
no food. The disciples said, Jesus, there's not, nobody has anything to eat, and they've been here forever. And Jesus said, well, go ask around. See if anybody's got something. The only food they could find in this huge group, some kid brought a lunch his mom packed in his Dukes of Hazard lunchbox, right? Gives it to Jesus. Jesus blesses it. He starts passing it out. Everybody has enough to eat. You do realize they weren't hungry in the same way you and I are getting hungry now, don't you? They're hungry because they didn't eat every day. When Jesus said to pray for your daily bread, enough, pray that I get enough bread today to eat, and then we'll pray about that tomorrow. When Jesus fed the crowds, this was a big deal because he was feeding hungry people. He was feeding disenfranchised people. He was feeding people that were not going to get fed otherwise. But for the rich, food, drink, and clothing were displays of wealth and opulence. Every day was a feast. Every weekend a wedding. Every occasion was special. For Jesus, whether we worry about the things we don't have or consumed with the things we do have, it's all really about the same. We've chosen material things over God. We've put material things, whether the lack of them or the abundance of them, we've put those material things in the place in our heart where Jesus serves for himself. Verse 28 and 30. Why, why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies. Solomon was not dressed as well as they. If God cares for the flowers, won't he even more care for you, you of little faith? In the first century, clothing was actually part of a diversified portfolio strategy. You know, we, you go spend you know, X amount for clothing today, it, it's worth a fraction of that the second you walk out of the store. The reality is back then, clothing was something people invested in. They invested in it. The worth of your clothing had to do with all types of factors. Difficulty to produce the exotic nature of the material used to make it, the process used to dye, quality and quantity of the handwork required, overall appearance of the garment. A lot of resources went into making a fine set of clothes and rich people bought them. Good clothing held value. It signified wealth and status and rank. It could be passed down from generation to generation. But the investment had three vulnerabilities. Number one, H, nothing really looks better as, as it ages. Number two, moss. Is anybody old enough to remember when moths were a factor? I remember being a little boy and sometimes you would pull things out and moths had eaten holes in sweaters and clothing and stuff. And do you remember moth balls? You remember what they smelled like? I just remember in DuCoin, a lot of people wore moth ball cologne. They smelled like mothballs all the time. It was just a very regular part of life, keeping the moths out of your clothing. And the other thing was theft. You, you can only wear one set of clothing at once. In my closet, I've got a whole bunch of hats. Anybody else got like a gazillion hats? I, I don't know why I'm, I'm hat retentive. I'm not sure why. But anyway, I've got a whole bunch of hats. And every morning, it, it just occurs to me, I'm not going to wear a hat today. But if any point during the day I spring 80 heads, I'll be perfectly covered because I just got hats everywhere. Well, in Jesus's day, regular people might just have one outfit. You ever bought an old house and noticed they didn't have closets? Because they didn't have extra stuff. They might have what they wore and one other thing. 
In Jesus' day, they may have literally only had what they wore. But rich people that had multiple garments, when you're out and people knew you were out, those things could be stolen. And they would represent a big hit to your financial portfolio. It was a weakness of that particular investment. To those who don't have the faith to believe that God will take care of them if they follow him, Jesus offers a quick fashion lesson. Even King Solomon, third king of Israel, noted in the Bible as the wealthiest king Israel had ever seen, even King Solomon in all of his finest raiment can't outdress a flower. And the God who made the flowers will clothe those who have chosen the kingdom of God. Verse 31, so don't worry about food and clothing like the pagans. God will meet your daily needs if you choose to make the kingdom your primary concern. Pagans spent their time in worry. Pagan religion is always trying to influence these mal-gods. These, these gods who worked against them. It was always an attempt to try to manipulate, influence, bribe them into doing something for you. And it was a way to deal with your fear. Pagan religion is a way to deal with fear. Jesus says in, verses, in verse 31, we don't have to behave like the pagans. And you want to know why? Because God actually loves us. And God will take care of us. So when we read the section, we may well think, you know, it's easy to say don't worry. But the bottom line is we have to eat. We have to drink. We have to have protection from the elements. We have to have a place to live. We have to make enough money to live. And if you don't have the necessities of life spoken for, it's, it's hard not to let them consume you. And Jesus' response to this is really clear. Seek my kingdom first and I'll take care of all those things. Seek my kingdom first and I'll take care of all those things. Birds don't worry, but they have plenty to eat and drink. Flowers don't worry, but they're better dressed than kings. One may say, well, this makes no sense. And it may not. But the kingdom of God often runs contrary to human logic and sensibilities. Faith is believing what we cannot see, trusting in what we do not fully understand, taking at face value the words of Christ, especially when they don't make sense to us. That faith. And then Jesus says in verse 34, so don't worry about tomorrow. Because today's trouble is enough for today. He's asking us to approach worry like we do food. Don't worry about food tomorrow. Pray for food today. And he's saying, don't worry about tomorrow. There's plenty of stuff to worry about today. There's plenty of stuff to deal with today. The notion, give us this day our daily bread, is, is a uniquely Christian one. We believe God provides for us a day at a time. And the discipline of believing develops faith. It develops faith. So often we pray that God would supply all of our needs the way we want our needs supplied. But I wonder sometimes if what we're truly praying for would be an existence that did not involve faith. Lord, give me plenty so I don't have to trust you day to day. That is a prayer I don't think God's going to be compelled to answer if it takes our hearts away from him. Jesus is the one who said, blessed are you when you are in need because you're acutely aware that you need us, that you need me. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's trouble is enough for today. A couple years ago, I did a Facebook poll and I asked people 
What worries them? One word. What worries you the most? One word. You ready for what worries people? Now, my guess is the order would be a little different today. Here's what worried people. Number one, the future. That was number one. They worried about the future. Number two, work. Number three, failure. Number four, health. Number five, family. Number six, money. Number seven, world events. My guess is that would be higher right now. And number eight, faith. Those were the things people worried about. After that, they really dropped off fairly quickly. This seems to be the main stuff that people worry about. But here's the deal. Bad stuff is going to happen whether you worry about it or not. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? Bad stuff's going to happen whether you worry about it or not. So our choice is to carry the weight of the world ourselves and be concerned with worry eight days a week or let Jesus carry it for us and live in his peace. That's the choice Jesus has given us. You can carry the weight of your world. You can worry about everything 24-7 and you're still going to have some challenges. Or you can let me carry this and you can live in peace and you're still going to have some challenges. In our passage, Jesus reveals his way of thinking. And he gives us four reasons not to worry. Number one, worry changes nothing. Have you guys ever noticed that worrying about stuff does not change things? It just doesn't change a thing. Number two, worry signifies a lack of faith. It signifies a lack of faith. Number three, worry is a pagan enterprise. How's that? Jesus said worry is what the pagans do. You know, if you spend most of your day trying to make deals with God... God, if you just do what I want to do the way I want you to do it, there might be something in it for you. Right? God's not a cover band. And you're not somebody in the audience slipping him a 50 to play your favorite song. It's just not the way it works. Worry's a pagan enterprise. We have to trust God to play the songs we need to hear. We can trust God for that. And then number four, God will provide for what we need. You see, we become consumed with worry the very moment we stop trusting God's love for us. The very second we stop trusting God's provision for us, we become consumed with worry. So for Jesus, choosing God over worry is is essential if we're going to live a life of peace. Otherwise, we're just going to be consumed by worry 24-7, 365. And it's literally going to extract all of the joy from life. It's going to take all the joy out of your life. It behooves us to do this. So I want to give you five steps to peace. This comes from my heart. Five steps to peace. Number one, turn your worrying impulse into a concern. I think it's really important that we articulate and admit to ourselves how we're feeling. I am scared. There's nothing wrong and a lot right with just being honest enough to say I am scared. Courageous people that I have known recognize their fear, but they act in spite of it. I'm scared. Number two, turn that concern to prayer. God, I'm scared. (laughs) Right? I'm not just scared, but God, I'm scared. This thing's got me. I'm I'm really concerned about this. Number three, turn the prayer into a release. God, this is too heavy for me to carry. You clearly did not make me strong enough to carry this because I'm doing a pretty lousy job at it. Lord, I need you. I give this to you. 
Number four, release the faith. Dear God, I don't understand it. I don't always feel it, but I believe you love me. And I believe you have this. And then number five, turn your faith to overcoming power. Did you know it's a perfectly good prayer to say, dear God, make my faith stronger? Dear God, give me a desire to obey Jesus' words. Lord, do give me, give me a heart for living the way Jesus asks us to live. So often we try and we fail and then we feel condemnation. Trying has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is never try harder. The gospel of Jesus is be born again and think completely differently. So we say, God, give me the strength to overcome. Give me the strength to let this go. Those are good prayers. Impulse to concern, concern to prayer, prayer to release, release to faith, and faith to overcome. All right, let me wind this down. My thesis today is that we can trust God to meet our needs when we step out in faith and obedience. You can trust God to meet your needs when you step out in faith and obedience. God is trustworthy. Today, we are recognizing our volunteers. It takes an army to run a church the size of Christ Church. We are incredibly grateful for our volunteers. Some of the volunteers you see, you know, they're outside, they're, they're greeting you. On a day like this, maybe greeting people outside is not the most difficult thing in the world. But I bet you guys have been coming here a while notice that when it's 100 degrees and about 130% humidity in the summer, in the mornings, those people are still outside greeting you. And in the winter, when it's zero degrees, they're still outside greeting you. You see those people. You see the, the ushers and the welcome team. But there's a lot of volunteers you don't see. We've got people in our security office right now who are watching film and making sure that we are safe while we're in this space. They're volunteers. We have people who are in the children's wing right now pouring in to your children and your grandchildren and mine, and they're volunteers. Did you know for every child we have in our wonderfully made special needs ministry, that these children have buddies, somebody that just takes an hour on a Sunday morning and just spends it and pours Jesus into those children. Those are volunteers. We have people that come in throughout the week and volunteer to do everything you could possibly imagine. We need hundreds of volunteers here. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I'm grateful to every single one of you. Some of our volunteers aren't even on site. We have volunteers who head up our internet ministries that go out all over the world. They may not even be in the state or anywhere close to us, but they're hosting and greeting in that way. We've got volunteers everywhere. I would like to ask all of our volunteers from Christ Church if you would just stand up, because I'd like to pray a blessing on you. Just stand up if you volunteer here at Christ Church. Almighty God, I pray your blessing upon these who give of their time and their talents so freely and so beautifully and so wonderfully. I pray your blessing upon each and every one of them. 
I pray, dear God, that even as they have given, so too would you give to them pressed down, shaken together and running over. I pray that you would return the time to them in beautiful and life-giving ways. And I pray that they would walk in your blessing as they serve today and every day. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Volunteers, thank you so very much. I know what you're thinking. How can I be a volunteer? That's what we're doing next Sunday. So be praying about it. Be praying about it. A lot of times volunteering comes in response to where God has touched your heart. So be thinking about where you might want to plug in next week. Last thing. When I came here in 1997, I always told the church I would be open and honest concerning finances because that's what I would expect a pastor to be with me. I have been faithful to that to the very, very best of my ability. For the past few months, actually it's been a couple of years now, we've been talking about our need to update, update infrastructure here and a renovation project. We've been talking about a two-year capital campaign that we're going to initiate to pay for it above what we regularly give. We have some infrastructure necessities here, things that just have to be done. And your trustees and your leadership team decided that to combine the infrastructure with the renovations while we had the whole place torn up for about eight weeks made perfect sense in every conceivable way. We've done our best to answer questions. We've done our our best to communicate with everybody. And we want to err on the side of over-communicating here. So if you have additional questions, next Sunday, 3 o'clock in the chapel, we are going to have our final meeting to answer any questions you have, anything on your mind, we would just love to talk to you. If absolutely no one shows up, I'm going to drink coffee and it'll be awesome. It'll be awesome. But we want to make sure that every question is answered. We have offered this information over a period of months. We've been delayed by the pandemic and by disaffiliation talks, then we were delayed by supply chain issues. And, and we're finally ready to get at this. So we have two things to ask of you concerning this capital campaign. It's really, really simple. Number one, listen for God's ping concerning your response above your regular giving. Just listen for God's ping. And number two, be obedient to that ping. How's that? <laughs> That's it. Listen for God's ping. Be obedient to what God puts on your heart for a two-year commitment. We're going to be making those commitments in two weeks. Of course, you can turn your cards in early if you wish. If you're on our mailing list, you will have already received or will receive in the next couple of days one of our pledge cards. What we're going to ask you to do is just bring it back to church. You can do that next week or the official pledge Sunday the following week. Sync Center right outside if you're one of our campuses Uh, It'll be your welcome center. But we've got envelopes there. You just put it in an envelope, leave it. That's it. That's it. We're renovating because we feel that the ministry of Christ Church is essential to the future of this region. We feel that a church that is going to stand unapologetically in biblical truth but is going to insist that we stand there in a spirit of Christ-like love is a unique and powerful message we plan to make until Jesus comes back. I tell people all the time, if you're not willing to stand 
for traditional biblical truth, we're just not going to be the church for you. And if you want to be ugly about standing there, we're not going to be the church for you either. I love to tell people I'm an orthodox, traditional Christian, but I'm not in a bad mood about it. And I believe there's a need for our church. I see people driving to church an hour in every conceivable direction, an hour plus in some cases, because they want to be a part of what God's doing here. I'm committed, not just to getting the infrastructure so that things work around here, but I'm committed to outfitting this church to reach your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and all of the generations to come, because I think a Christ-like church, a church like Christ Church, is absolutely essential in the strategy of the Great Commission moving forward. I believe in the ministry of this church, and it is without apology that when we have a need, I bring the need to you. And it is a great joy for Melissa and I to ask ourselves the same questions that we're asking you to ask. I want to assure you that you can afford to follow Jesus, whether it be volunteering your time next week, whether it be making a financial gift the following week. You can afford to follow Jesus. You can afford to say yes to what God puts on your heart. When we put Jesus first in our life, everything else finds its proper place. I've been preaching out of the New Living Translation, which I really like for readability. It's a a decent translation. It's highly readable. But there are times I just sort of revert back to my old King James. Anybody else grow up with the old King James Bible? You know, Matthew 6.33 is brilliantly expressed in the King James. And I want you to hear these words as I close. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You know what he's saying? Put God first and everything will find its proper place. But if you fail to put God first, nothing will find its proper place. We can afford to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Great and mighty God, thank you for who you are, for what you've done and what you're doing in this house and in our midst. Thank you, dear God for the vision that you've placed in this church. I know if I was visiting a church for the first time, the one thing I'd want to know is where are you people going? Because if you're not going anywhere, I don't want to go with you. Because I've only got so long to live and I want to be a part of something great that God is doing if I'm going to be a part of a church. So dear God, thank you for this vision for reaching future generations for Jesus. Thank you for what you have done here. Thank you for what you're doing here. And thank you for what you are about to do here. And thank you that we can afford to be your disciples. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. We're going to lift up our hearts and we're just going to worship Jesus for a bit because that's what we do here. But after the service ends, from now through Christmas, there are going to be some folks at each end of the sanctuary and at each end of the balcony and in front at our campuses. And they're going to be available after church is over to pray with you. Whatever need you have. People have told me, I I really needed prayer, but I feel kind of awkward getting up in front of everybody, and I get that. So from now through Christmas, if you came here with a heavy heart, just like a faith-filled human being to actually pray with you, we'd like to invite you to, to do that. As soon as we dismiss, they'll be in the corners. Let's stand. Let's lift up our hearts. 
Let's worship this incredible God.